Welcome to the Horsewise Podcast with Lynn Reardon, where we share stories of horses and people and what they teach each other. On today's episode, we have Amy Skinner returning for a second interview. Amy shares her thoughts on the relationship between her dynamics, horse handling, and riding. I hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. I'm Lynn Bearden. I'm the host of the Horsewise podcast, and I have with me Amy Skinner of Amy Skinner Horsemanship. This is Amy's second appearance on the Horsewise podcast. She's been super patient with all of our <laughs> questions, and she tells a lot of great stories about her experience as a horsewoman, a teacher, and a trainer. So Amy, welcome again to the Horsewise podcast. Oh, thanks for having me back. Yeah, so we thought we would talk about a specific topic today, and this is a topic that Amy has chosen, and it's on the relationship between herd dynamics, horse handling, and riding, which I think is a great topic. And I'd like to just go ahead and turn it over to you, Amy, and have you get started on what you think are the important elements of that relationship between those things. Oh, well, uh, this is one of my favorite topics because as I realized in horse training, uh, it's never just as simple as training the horse and turning right. them back home to their owner. So a lot of my work involves adjusting their turnout situation, um, their day-to-day care, how they are when I feed them, how they are when I open the gate, how they are with their other herd mates. So all mm-hmm. of that stuff is really, really important and contributes to how they operate. Um, on the end of a lead line, on the end of your reins, between your legs. Um, and so that relation has become more and more important to me. Um, and I find that a lot of times uh, I can pretty well guess how a horse is going to feel under saddle just by leading him around for a second or watching his owner lead him around for a minute before a lesson. Um, and so improving those areas of their life means much, much more to me over time and also makes it way easier for them to make those adjustments under saddle. So that that's, um, you know, it's kind of an all encompassing approach instead of like, my horse doesn't really listen to my leg. He tends to push through my leg. Well, that horse very likely pushes on your other horses. He pushes on your lead line. He pushes on the fence. He pushes on just about everything in front of him. So instead of beating him up with my leg and making this huge fight about it, I adjust, um, his living situation. I make sure he's out with the appropriate type of herd that he's not pushing around. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that makes a huge difference in that horse's life. And then I don't have to start a war with him over just moving off my leg. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought about it quite so directly that of course I've seen horses that push on people, even when they're leading them or even when they're mm-hmm. going to catch them, like they'll literally lean into the person as yeah. altering them. And yeah. like, that's, that's really not an ideal way to start the conversation. Mm-hmm. The just rammed his nose right into your shoulder while you were quote altering him. But mm-hmm. it is interesting, this idea that you bring up that it goes back to the social structure in the herd environment or the pasture environment. So if that horse is not with the right grouping, if let's say he's a horse that really should be, would be better suited as like number three in the herd and he ends up being number one and he's just not handling the power well. He's not, he's not, he's not being very balanced. It's gone to his head, but that's going to translate under saddle too. I hadn't really thought about it that way. Back when I first started uh, working with X-Race horses, we had a great old herd boss. His name was Zuper. He'd run forever. Mm -hmm. And he was this great blend of cop, babysitter and like just like mother hen and uh-huh. he, he would 
basically do three quarters of the socialization and training for me for these Those sources are priceless. They are, they are. He he worked for us until he was like 17 and he's like, I'm tired of this. And we retired in this (sighs) beautiful ranch. But, you know, it was just really, he did a lot of that work and we didn't even think about it. I didn't even think about it that much that that was so key to it all. He took care of all the herd dynamics for me. Yeah. Which is pretty cool. It's very cool. Um, I have a mare like that too. And I wish I had seven of her because I have seven pastures. I wish I had one for every pasture, but um, it's a really excellent tool to put a horse in who's a little troubled in a really solid Mm -hmm. herd. Uh, And a lot of people tell me their horse is dominant. He's the alpha. He's the head of the herd when really they're actually not. They're just aggressive because they're very afraid. Um, and a confident horse does not attack other horses all the time. So that type of horse is not dominant. He's afraid. There's there's something turbulent in that horse's life that is not working out well. So with that kind of... Sorry, I was going to say, he's insecure, like really. And very insecure. Absolutely. Uh, and so that type of horse does really well being put into a herd that has a really healthy structure that are not going to be moved by that horse, but they also aren't going to hurt him or scare him. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had several of those over the last few months that have changed entirely. They were, they were confrontational with people, um, sometimes outwardly aggressive. I've had some that couldn't go out with other horses without actually trying to kill them. Um, wow. and obviously they did not ride well, but by the time they were integrated into a herd and feeling pretty comfy, they were so much more comp- confident. They were so much more relaxed. They were so much easier to handle and instead of me having to take this very confrontational approach with that horse and teach them what horses could teach them much more easily, I just let the herd take care of it. Cause most of them are missing out on some really essential socialization in their early lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had a sense. horse. I have a really interesting horse that I work with who was um, imprinted at birth and his mother was injured at the time. And so she wasn't really able to mother him. Oh she was on stall rest. Yeah. And he ended up growing into an 18 hand monster. I mean, oh, he just no. oh. pushed his entire herd around. His mother never was able to move him away from her. Uh, and he, because of his imprinting was not afraid of people, but oh, he was very pushy yeah. with people. Right. Uh, and so when he was handled as a foal, it was this weird combination between being shoved around by people trying to get him to do something and being spoiled back and forth. Oh. He would go back so as he grew up, he didn't have any herd socialization skills, and naturally he wasn't willing to do anything anyone wanted if he didn't want to, and could be quite confrontational about saying no. So putting him in with my herd was a godsend. I mean, it just made such a huge change to that horse because, first of all, he didn't know how to move off of other horses' pressures. Mm-hmm. Um, so they taught him that pretty quickly, and then he was much more responsive to me asking him to move or to draw because that, that essential piece, if it's missing from a horse, which I think most people work really hard to take that away from a foal very quickly. Um, but when, once you're missing that, a horse is really not better off at all. That's interesting. And why do people tend to want to take that out? Oh, well, you have this cute little baby foal and it's, you know, so tempting to want to snuggle it and be friendly. And we prioritize, you know, horses being friendly and unafraid and nobody wants a horse that spooks at stuff or, you know, you want a horse that you can brush, you want a horse that you can handle. Um, but people aren't aware of those drive lines that horses have without being taught them. I think it's not really part of our normal 
day-to-day lives. Um, and so we accidentally push and pull on the horse at the same time. We walk right into drive lines. We teach the horse to blur those lines or erase them completely. Or we purposely take them away, you know, by teaching them like, you know, here's something scary. Don't move. Don't run away. Right. Um, just I'm going to touch you. Just take it. Just and take- then you get a horse who kind of shuts out stimulus and learns to walk through drive lines. So, oh, like a horse naturally should feel pressure move them mm-hmm. and should feel drawing draw them. You know, those types of energies are very different. Right. Um, and most of the young horses that I meet in some type of, especially breeding programs, if they're expensive sport horses, uh, nobody wants to buy a sport horse who has a little bit of natural life in them. They all want them super friendly, super easy going. Look, we can clip him, we can bridle him, we can lead him, we can do whatever. You can sit on his head if you want. You know, it, uh, <laughs> they're not going to sell if they have any, any snorty tendencies. So those ones, all of their instincts, if not most, most of them have been stripped away. And then in the starting process, they get way too much pressure put on them because to make them go, you have to force them to go. To make them turn, you have to pull them. And, and it just turns into this, you take away all of this stuff that's in them that makes them naturally light. And mm-hmm. then you have to push them around forever. Right, right. It's and pretty then you, hard to get that back. Yeah, and then if you want life to come up, it must be like, you're basically setting a bonfire underneath yeah. them. So, so there's, it takes probably takes a while for there to be this sort of offering to you of life from the horse. The horse is like, you're going to have to blow it out of me kind yeah. of thing. And that's not that much fun to uh, ride, I would guess. Um, it's not. And then they don't feel good. And then, you know, yeah. to have to put that type of pressure on a horse to motivate them is not a good way to build a relationship. No, I've worked with these horses that ran a long time at the track and we spend a huge amount of time with groundwork and stuff like that because the way that they understand work to be, and they, they were good at that job, right? They raced a long time, retiring to eight, nine, 10 years old, is that work means that you're going to, your life is going to come up and it's going to be very uh, kind of pressured and a little eruptive and probably doesn't feel very good. We get so many, you know, and we get so many horses that'll come off the track. We turn them out for a long time. We work with them and we have, let's say a a good groundwork session and we lead them out of the round pen and they're like, I'm a total jerk now because this was a wonderful (laughs) session and this is how I show my pleasure. And I'm like, okay, we don't do it that way. And so you have to completely like, it's just really strange. And in, in some ways those racehorses, you know, they're, they want them to bring up the life, but it kind of comes up, like you said, it's kind of this torrent instead yeah. of something more directed. So anyway, that's a sidetrack, but um, yeah, it's interesting to me what you're saying. Yeah, I get that with barrel racers. A lot of performance horses get that way where people intentionally just drive them up. Yeah. So they're just high anxiety, full of all this um, adrenaline-fueled energy. Um, and those people feel that they're using that for a performance edge. Right. And if they ever lost that, then they wouldn't be able to perform. So you're, you're pushing a horse through those barriers. I mean, purposely jacking them up to run through your bit and run through your reins because of excess force. You know, so one of the other important things um, that I try to teach my horses is to not have to push them through a barrier by not causing them to feel the need to go through that, if that makes sense. Right. So, yeah. Like if I were 
trying to teach one to lead nicely and not crowd me. Mm-hmm. I would make sure that there weren't scary things that he would blow away from into me because he feels the need to, you know, there's too much pressure for something else pushing him into me. And then I would have to do something to shove him off of me. And so then he's got this fight between something that's scaring him and my pressure. And to me, that's just a, an unfair, unfair situation, an unfair battle. So I can set it up so that he goes away from me by making sure that scary thing is on the opposite side. Oh, you know, and by sense. setting up situations like that enough times, then you have a horse who's very malleable and knows to respect your pressure and your drive lines and your drawing uh, feeling because they're not being pushed through the pressures of the environment too. Just like other horses, you know, if another horse is coming to push my horse, this happens in the pasture when people go out to get their horses, yeah. they're haltering their horse and the herd has come up and is pushing their horse toward the person. And the person starts trying to drive the horse away from them back into the fire of the other horses. Right, right. right. And that horse has to choose between which is more uncomfortable, the herd pressure or your pressure. And to me, that's very unfair. No. And what we tend to do with that is like, sometimes I work with interns or students and I'll say, you know, know where those other horses are first before you go. Mm -hmm. Don't go up to your horse in you know, the middle of the round bale where there's seven other horses and it's right. about to, and they're about to change the round bale. Like don't do right. that. <laughs> and then, so make sure you have your spacing where you want it first is right. an opportunity maybe to draw the horse that you want to catch a little bit outside the herd or to ask the rest of the herd to, you know, leave in a way that isn't super agitating. So otherwise you get in those situations so easily, you know, you're halt- procedure halting a tall horse. So you don't realize, you know, four uh, helpers have come up behind you and they're right. really wanting to like nip that horse on the butt for you. <laughs> then, then you're just like flinging your lead rope around at everybody. And it's, it's kind of a mess. It's, it's funny. Yeah. And I think a lot of don't, people don't realize at that moment too, that the pressure they're trying to put on, on the other horses is going into their horse that they're trying to hold still. Right. So it's just a, lack of awareness of drive lines and draw lines, what those mean to the horse. And, and over time through repetitions of um, events like that, where you push horses inadvertently through drive lines or ask them to come toward those, those lines get blurred. And then when you get in the saddle, you know, your, your legs and your hands and all of those things are just an extension of that. That makes sense. That makes sense. And so when you, Let's say, I know that you, you teach a lot of clinics, right? And so you're meeting people maybe for the first time in that clinic with their horses. What is it that you look for right away? Are you looking for how do they interact with the other horses as they're riding their horse? Or is there some sort of telltale thing that you look at and go, okay, I can really see this pattern more and more? You know, it's pretty immediate because I'm standing on the ground if it's a private session clinic or I'm on a horse if it's a a group clinic, but most of the time, the way that the horse interacts with the rider coming up to meet me tells me a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, because you know, if I'm on the ground teaching on my own feet, the person will come up to talk to me and the horse will walk straight over the top of my toes and put their nose (laughs) right in my face. (laughs) I remember you talked about this in our, in our last interview and and they're like, Oh, he's really friendly. And you're like, okay, he has no sense of boundary whatsoever. You know, it's funny. I remember that. And it's it's not just coming up to me, but almost like on top of me. Like if I weren't aware I would get stepped on by horses every day all day (laughs) because that is the most common one or you know watching people get the horses off their trailers and the horses are looking around and pushing their shoulders into people and dragging them around on the lead rope and um 
you know, that's when a lot of people are like, well, he's in a new place and he's not paying attention to me. And I'm like, well, I would venture to say he never pays attention to you and he always pushes on you. You're right. just getting a very uh, exaggerated version of that now where his energy is up. Right, right. So but um, it's, and then the way that they interact with my horse too, where a lot of horses in clinics in a group clinic, if I'm riding my horse and other people are on theirs, their horses too don't have a clue how to interact with other horses. Um, you know, because coming into my horse's space is a very, uh, a well-socialized horse who understands those things just wouldn't do that. It's rude. And it's very rude and it's very threatening. Uh, yeah. and, and I think people don't understand that either, that when you're on your horse, you need to keep your horse away from other horses and other horses away from yours. Right. And you know, that's kind of where like ears start getting pinned and people start getting worried about their horses being aggressive to other horses when they're, they're just really worried that nobody's got the situation under control. There's horses everywhere. I can't be guaranteed that that one's not going to come in my face. And fortunately my horse is pretty used to, you know, kind of like the labradoodle horses of the world. She's very good about it, but I make sure to bring her and not maybe one of my more insecure horses so that they wouldn't um, react to that right. while I'm and, teaching people. Well, I know I personally have a big space bubble myself. Like, if, Oh, me too. Uh, it's just kind of like, <laughs> look, I don't really like that myself. So I always tend to get that, unless I'm really early on, like when I first go to clinics, I might get really excited about a conversation and I realize, wow, I'm a little too close because I'm like doing the equivalent of leaning into you with my horse. <laughs> but most of the time I would catch that um, or – I would be riding a nervous horse who would be like skittering away anyway. So I'd be like, I'm over here. I'm going to wave at you and talk to you from a distance. But yeah. um, I, I find it interesting too, that in general uh, people tend to uh, just kind of walking the earth as individual people, they tend to have a little less spatial awareness themselves. So uh, just with other people, it's almost like that's become a little bit of a blurred distinction. Maybe as we've become, you know, more industrialized, less, you know, yeah. outdoorsy, whatever it is, and uh, so that translates under saddle or when people are handling their horse, or they handle their horse like they handle their dog, and right. you know, yeah. which can seem like I've I've worked with a lot of people who are like, well, I I don't want to be mean to my horse. Like I want my horse to snuggle with me. I really love to come up to him and pet him. And let him know that I love him. And I'll be like, well, yeah. your, your particular horse actually gets a little too stimulated the way that you pet him. And then it becomes this yes. whole thing. Your particular horse needs you to actually step back and give him some space while yeah. he processes. Or if you don't have any space, it's really hard to set the boundary. Like you can't set a boundary when the horse is in your lap. Like you can't go, right. okay, actually you can only be halfway in my lap. Like the, the whole point yeah. of the boundary is that you have some space to operate in. And some people really find that uncomfortable. Like they feel like, I'm maybe asking them to be um, very authoritative, authoritarian. Or yeah. And it's, it's something to help your horse feel more secure. Yeah, really. It. So I have a little gelding who was um, very, very insecure, but he also was kind of those, one of those super in your face puppy dog mm -hmm. types of horses, but it wasn't out of affection he wanted to give you. He was just super insecure and he had been hand fed a lot and over, overhandled, I would call that. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he would, the more insecure he got, the more in your face he was. And when people would pet him, he would get really, what's the word I'm looking for? Just his, he would just get more agitated and more pushy. Like, 
Like until eventually he, yeah. he'd get in trouble and then somebody would get after him and whack him in the face and then he would kind of start to do this where he would duck his head but keep coming back wow. and so at my place i have a rule that nobody touches any of the horses without like express commission permission like if you come into my property no horse petting um because not only do i not want horses to come up to the fence and push on my fence to get petted by people but I don't want well-meaning people to get the horses agitated or pushy or avoiding, you know, when you reach out your hand and the horse turns their head away, mm-hmm. all of those things have a meaning and a, an effect. Um, and a lot of my horses are like, you know, lost boys. They're in <laughs> some type of rehabilitative program. And just a simple interaction like that can destroy a lot of confidence, you know, that, that somebody petted in a way that scared them or agitated them or caused them to push or to avoid. Uh, and it's well-meaning, you know, people don't mean to go out and like, I'm going to screw up your horse today, right, you know, right, <laughs> but, right. but it still has an effect. So that's it's, my rule is, is no petting. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and just for our listeners and viewers who maybe didn't hear the first interview with Amy a few weeks ago, Amy works a lot with very troubled horses, right? So you're mm-hmm. working with horses that have really kind of, uh, regress to the point where they needed extreme intervention. I think you mm-hmm. mentioned to me before that a lot of times you get the horses that you're pretty much their last stop. Like the they're on death row. They're on death row. <laughs> and so so you really you really understand the importance of, yeah. of of this process for them. This isn't some casual thing like, oh, you know, this might work or not. It's like if this isn't sort of enforced consistently, there will be huge repercussions for the horses and most mm-hmm. people don't see those repercussions fortunately like we wouldn't want them to have to deal with that but right. it, it can really build up over time and um so that's just something i want people to understand that amy isn't just going i am very you know firm with all of my horses they can never <laughs> yeah. be petted it's like no i love to pet them yeah um, and i think petting is a wonderful thing and you know some people i think get the get the idea that like oh you're mean and you don't pet the horses no i love to pet them me too, um, yeah. But you're not allowed to pet them so that I can pet them. <laughs> right, exactly. You get to pet them properly first. Like exactly. if that horse really has five petting sessions in it, Amy gets to do them. Okay, so because you're going to do it right. <laughs> no, I mean, like you need to pet in the appropriate way and at the right time. So your petting should not bother, agitate, scare. Uh, or like, you know, when people slap their necks or ruffle right. right in the middle of their face. I mean, there's an appropriate way to pet each individual horse and you have to have some feel for what that horse is wanting. And sometimes a pet is not appropriate, maybe just a touch on the neck. Right. You know, like for my gelding who gets agitated, I don't stand in front of his face almost ever. I stand by his shoulder and when he needs a little reassurance, I just touch his neck. And to him, that kind of makes him drop his head and he feels calm and, um, and, and not only that, but there's, there's that natural lightness in the horse that if you over pet, you remove that. So if I'm riding a horse and their attention is to the left and I want to make a right turn, I can touch the right side of their neck, bring their attention back over there. And now we can go to the right instead of having to yank that bit through his mouth and pull his teeth out and make this huge thing that you don't get that type of lightness with horses who are over petted in ways that are meaningless. That's really interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, that you're taking away the ability, not only for the horse to be light, but for you to also be light. You know, yeah. your touch has to be heavier to get his attention. He's dull and you're having to like almost yeah. reinforce that. And yeah. may, maybe that wouldn't be a factor for uh, many people wouldn't think about that, but really any kind of 
sort of advancement in the horse's movement or gaits has to come from lightness. You know, you can't mm-hmm. yank, yank a horse up to pee off. Ideally, that's really not going to work, <laughs> you know, although God knows people try. But um, right. I just feel like that's, that's a really interesting way to put it. I haven't thought about it that way before. It's really insightful. Yeah, if you, I mean, I've started, I don't know how many colts, I don't keep track of it, but but the the nicest rides that I have sometimes are on horses with the least education, because if you preserve that life that they come with so often, you can have the most beautiful, light ride that I don't think most people have experienced, and if they did, then they would want it, I think. I think mm-hmm. that most people just don't know what it feels like. Um, you know, like a if you've been riding a horse with a death grip with your calves and your knees and you're squeezing, 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 then that horse is not going to be light and receptive to your seat bones. And so those types of horses aren't just going to suddenly, when you take your leg off, be like, you know what? I should really listen to the more subtle cues because that has just been sort of deadened. I mean, they're not just, they're not disobeying you, but that, you know, if you live under 10,000 pounds of pressure all the time, that's what you get accustomed to. Right. And if you live, if you live under 10,000 pounds of pressure, 9,900 pounds of pressure doesn't feel like that much of a difference for a release, right? Yeah. So. And so for, for me, I, I'm not able to be as subtle or as light or as fluid as I would like to be with those horses. And to me, that's a huge bummer yeah. um, because you can, you can be soft and light when you're effective first. And first with those kinds of horses, I have to communicate with them in a way that makes sense to them. I can't go to this mysterious feather light working on feel thing if they've never had it especially right. if they moment they hit the ground people are all over them touching them pulling on them handling them uh i mean i've seen a lot of first halterings and foals and it can be brutal i mean they're pinned in a quarter they're hold they're somebody's holding their tail in their head and they're shoving a halter over their face and pulling them around and you see foals walked around every i mean top dollar foal somebody's pulling their head and pushing their butt i mean that is just from yeah. very young age, all of that natural feel is removed. Yeah, that's too bad. And so you can't suddenly go in there yeah. and be like, you know, nice horsey, turn left. If I right. touch your neck, you know, that's yeah. that's not and in there anymore. No. And can that be? Do you think that can be regained over time, depending on how old the horse is or how quickly it gets to somebody like you? Yeah, to an extent. I mean, I think there's an amount that will never come back, but you can be a perfectly lovely horse. The imprinted one I told you about, mm-hmm. he's, he's lovely. I, I really love to ride him now, but initially it wasn't like that. Right. Um, but he, he'll never be as light as maybe one that I like lassoed off the range. And, right, know, right. Like that. <laughs> or, is, is that something you do on Sundays? You go and lasso them off oh, the yeah. range? Yeah, it's just the normal. That's after after brunch, brunch, after brunch, you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have brunch first. Then yes, and then you lasso. Because you want to, yeah, you want to have carbs. It's a carb-loading experience. <laughs> exactly. Actually, it's so funny. Somebody called me one time and they said, are you in the middle of riding? And I said, well, no, I'm washing dishes. And she was like, you know, everyone thinks horse trainers have this glamorous life when like you're just regular person so I was like well actually I'm in the middle of roping some wild cows out on the range right right and I'm answering my phone because I'm an idiot (laughs) (laughs) no this is why I'm washing dishes and trying to get a load of diapers done (laughs) oh you're completely demystifying your uh glamorous image now for everyone (laughs) (laughs) no (laughs) <laughs> I take out the garbage like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that kind of leads to this other idea, which is, um, 
a lot of the most important handling or work I feel like with horses is often really small, steady things like washing the dishes that mm -hmm. maybe don't seem like they have a big payoff, right? So people might be like, oh, you know, I, I need to get a lot of gear or I need a lot of um, fancy equipment or I need to have the perfect spur and do it. But really, it's, it's not about that. It's really about these very simple day-to-day -day things, building mm -hmm. your awareness, catching when your horse maybe changes expression, maybe right before he changes expression, yeah. something changes in his body before you mm -hmm. can see it in his his eyes or in, in how he's holding his mouth or his jaw. And that doesn't always maybe track with this idea of instant results that seems to sort of be part of many cultures, particularly ours, yeah. American culture. And so what do you think about that? Like, how do you, how do you help? Because you're really, you're really educating the owners and the people who have the horses too. So how do you how do you approach that? How do you help people well, get aware of that? That's hard. You know, because a lot of people who are, coming to a lesson like at a clinic when we do the the lesson where it's the little details uh learning to walk with a long neck relaxing learning to catch that expression learning to feel the drive line stuff like that i think people who are not used to that type of lesson will be like well you know it was fun but we didn't get a lot done when to me like everything got, got done. done all of the right. meat and potatoes you know and they're like well we didn't do much we just kind of walked around which just means they're not uh, conditioned to seeing those details yet. Uh, you have to learn to train your eye mm -hmm. and that's no big deal. I might've thought that at one time too. Um, but my ideal cult starting situation, uh, and I've done this with my own horses, but I'm not able to keep clients horse for like from birth till four or five, Right. <laughs> they, they have nice handling all along in these small, boring interactions that aren't training sessions. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you know, where you just, you interact with their mom in a nice way. So they see you handling their mom and they're not afraid, but you don't touch them. You leave the baby alone, let the herd handle the baby. And then eventually as you do handle them, it's just, you turn your head this way and turn your head that way. That's great. And then the halter is the same thing. And then the lead line is the same thing and you know how to drive and draw. Uh, and then little by little, you layer in those little interactions where this is how you are at feeding time. This is how you're on the halter. This is how you are next to your mom. This is how you are with the herd. And by the time you're up there in the saddle, it's just no big deal. It's not cool. a big training to do. And I've done that with a couple horses of my own that I was able to sell. And their first and second rides were so uneventful and lovely and boring that I almost forgot. Yeah, uh, once it was their first Steve, ride. <laughs> yeah, Steve Peters has one of those now. I got her when she was a weanling. But um, the second ride, I was out moving the cows around in the back pasture. And I was like, wait, I forgot. This is the second <laughs> ride. <laughs> she was just so, everything was just a non-issue. And it wasn't that she hadn't had extensive training. It was just little details over the years. Right, right. You built that strong foundation. And yeah, people, I think, tend to think that it's like some giant excavation project. Yeah, and, but right. lots of noise and there's drilling. And, and yeah. it's really, like you said, these really little steady things. Mm -hmm. And I, it kind of occurred to me as you were talking about the student maybe having that nice ride with you where you're just working on what you perceive to be the most important things. And then afterwards they're like, well, nothing much happened. And they're kind of like the horses that have been sort of overstimulated into dullness. Mm -hmm. like they, they, have right. no, they have no feel either. So right. exactly. And, and that's, so how do you, so how do we do that with the students? It's like, 
you know, it's we can't turn them out in a herd with people like you. That would be <laughs> that would be hard. That would be hard on their families. They'll be like, my my wife is with Amy. She's in the herd. So, but I mean, really, it is sort of it is kind of a hard thing to, you know, the horses are more straightforward yeah. for for someone I like just, you. In lessons like that, I just frequently comment on on the qualities that I like that are happening. Like, mm -hmm. oh, look at how lovely his breathing is. Or look, listen to the footsteps. They're so steady now. And they're so much softer. Or look at his neck. It's starting to get straighter. And they're like, whoa, I never noticed that. And my hope is that, you know, sometimes in those lessons, the people are like, well, he's not bending enough. Or he's not forward. Or he's not off my leg. And they have this, like, list of things he's not doing. And a lot of times it's because the horse is really tense. Or he's used to, like, I need 10,000 pounds of pressure from your left leg before I ever bend. And so... I hope that through repetitive conditioning by pointing out the qualities that are changing very subtly that people start to pick up and have an eye for it. Yeah, that makes sense. And sometimes people get to talking and they start talking over the horse's expression, you know, where they're talking to me about what they are noticing or not noticing where the horse is in the middle of saying something very important. And at those moments I interrupt them and we go back yeah. to like, Look, your horse is yawning and looking at chewing. He hasn't, he hasn't breathed for the first half hour and now he's having this huge release. Let's look at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And some of it is just guiding, guiding the person's thoughts and the person's conversation more than, more than anything to get them to start to be aware of those things. Cause once you're aware of them, then they're in your radar and then you can think about them. Yeah. And then like you said, that's great. You know, praising or calling attention to, Hey, you mm -hmm. noticed that like, that's great. You noticed it. And I've had that scenario too, where someone's talking about what just happened and the horse puts its head on the ground and starts to yawn, mm -hmm. huge yawn and I'm like, we can stop talking now. This is actually a lot more important. And they're like, yeah. I, did, I didn't want to be rude. And I'm like, you can always stop talking to me. If your horse is doing that, <laughs> just shut up. Like I'm, not, I'm looking at your horse anyway. I'm not listening to you most of the time anyway. So just, just do that. And you have total permission from me. Right. And um, so I'm obviously, when I teach, I'm obviously extremely uh, authoritarian. As you can tell, I'm pretty much like, <laughs> Don't even do eye contact with me. If your horse is yawning, if anything in those lips are moving, focus on your horse. That's my thing. Yeah. So. And the other thing I think is that people are really used to in lessons being told what to do and responding. Yeah. And lessons, the way that I run them are a little bit different because it's more about me pointing out things and explaining principles. And then I'm sort of guiding you through that. Mm -hmm. And so I think people feel like if I haven't said, like if the horse is standing still while I'm talking and starts to fidget, they feel like I have to stand still. She's talking and she hasn't told me I can go walk. Right. And so, you know, to my point is like, who cares what I said to do? Go do what you feel needs to happen and I'll guide you through that. So if your horse is dancing around and like starting to half rear in place and please, by all means, <laughs> please take who cares? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Please don't wait for him to flip over. Yeah, really. Yeah. It's like, if you really have to go to the bathroom too, please don't feel like you have to like strain <laughs> yeah. your bladder. Just leave it. You don't even have to tell me about it. I'll, I'll figure it out. Yeah. Leave. So it's just And funny. I think that's part of rewiring the way people think about writing too, because mm -hmm. People are used to not thinking through a lesson, but being told what to do and responding. Mm -hmm. And I've definitely, I can, I can totally relate to that. Cause I, you know, learned to write at a military writing school. It was like, please oh, don't have wow. an independent thought, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. 
there's some baggage I can unpack through that, but <laughs> we won't get into that. That'll but, be the um, next the next episode. We'll talk about your, yeah. your military traumas uh, I experienced. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'd like to talk about traumas I inflicted on teachers. That would be my next episode. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so just getting people to think that they are allowed to notice their horse and I hear from students so often that like I didn't feel like what he was asking me to do was right, but you know, he's the teacher and he knows. And now I feel bad for what I had to do to my horse. So to get people to think that they actually probably know their horse much better than the teacher does. And right. their observation is allowed to lead their choices rather than, you know, Mr. So-and-so with a German accent in the middle of the arena. Right. Totally. So, or Australian accent or whoever's cool at the time, right. you know, <laughs> they usually they do have an accent though, just so we can make fun of them. But yeah, <laughs> there, there's a joke that like, uh, the difference between a, an instructor and a clinician is the accent and the cost. That's right. <laughs> you should develop an accent, Amy. You should do that just for fun. Well, in the South, it, they tell me I have an accent. And I was like, you're the ones with the accent. What's your accent supposed to be in the South to them? Just not Southern, I guess. Like not Southern. Yankee accent. Yeah. Oh, well, funny. So my, my family, uh, most of my family uh, grew up in Brooklyn, New York, before it was cool, by the way, when Brooklyn mm -hmm. was like not the most ideal place. And right. then for many years, I lived in the Washington, D.C. area and then eventually moved to Texas. And my Brooklyn cousins call me Scarlet. They say I have a Southern accent. And I'm like, what? This is like this flat <laughs> mid-Atlantic. And the Texans are like, you're a Yankee. I'm like, what? Like, I'm not like, yeah. like you need to meet my Brooklyn cousins. You know, it's just funny how that is. People's yeah, when I first moved down here, I stopped to fuel up my truck with like the trailer still in tow, all my horses in it. And somebody was like, the gas station clerk was like, you're not from around here. <laughs> I was like, how, how can you tell? <laughs> what gave it away? <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't have an accent. No, no, you don't. To me, you don't have an accent at all, by the way. See? So I guess you and I were from the same weird country that is Yankee and not Southern unless you're from New I guess York. So. Which we, in case we are Southern at that point. Yeah. So, well, I was thinking about something you were saying again about you know the people sort of feeling like they can't think themselves for themselves during a lesson that they've been accustomed to that. Not not mm -hmm. teachers like you, of course, but that's kind of like their horses too, right? So their horse. Mm -hmm. A lot of horses have been trained from an early age to not really ask questions, just to execute. And yeah. sometimes you end up having to create more. You you do you get drawn into doing more and more pressure to get that point across. So it's sort of interesting how the student and the horse in that case mirror each other. They both have to learn how to think mm -hmm. and assess what's being asked of them. And they're not necessarily always going to get it right, but you want to reward them both for searching, for searching in the yeah. right direction. And that's something too, I don't think students give themselves a lot of credit for searching. They feel like searching means that they got it wrong from the start. Oh yeah. They always ask me, you know, was that right? Was that right? And I always say, well, what do you think? How did it feel? And then they look horrified. Like, what do you mean? Me? Think? Answer? <laughs> I have no idea. No, yeah. I can't. You're right. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I always tell people like, what do you think you should do? And they're like horrified. Like they know if they make the wrong choice, they're going to get in trouble. Um, or like at the beginning of the lesson, because I don't give an immediate exercise. Sometimes I'll watch the rider and horse and you can just feel this like palpable terror where they're like, she didn't tell me what to do. What do I do? I'm just Whatever wondering. I'm doing, I'm doing it wrong. Even though she didn't tell me to do anything, I'm doing it wrong because I didn't do the things she magically wanted me to do. And so oh, you really have to feel for people like that. Cause I have been a person like that. Me too. I can relate me to too. it, but, but it's, 
horrifying because you don't trust any of your own instincts. You don't trust, and then you don't learn how to actually relate to your horse because you're up in your head on top of your horse and your horse is down here, just this little minion and you're not having a real conversation. You know, you're just obeying orders. And so you're not learning how to feel, how to think, how to respond. Um, and then those are the type of type of people that get like hooked on a trainer and they can only ever ride with their trainer. They only ride with so-and-so because they hang on his every word. And to me, that's like a very good sign that that instructor is not teaching them how to observe and think. Right. Um, and, and my hope is for all my students to be like, I don't need you anymore. See ya. And I'm like, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you. Yeah. Right. Get, and please be better than me because that's a really easy goal. To oh execute. yeah. So One let of me my please help you. Always, yeah. <laughs> she always says, Oh, I could never do it better than you. And I'm like, you had better get yeah, better than yeah, you. Otherwise, what am I wasting my time here for? No, I'm just kidding. But, <laughs> totally, but I always I totally tell her, <laughs> you totally could get better than me. You have to, the, the beliefs are limiting, you know? Yeah, you had a post recently on your page that I thought was really, was really important for people to read. And you were talking about how you'd be working with a student and you would say, hey, that's really improved. You know, like maybe your uh, balance at the sitting trot is really improved. And the rider would be like, yeah, but I didn't have good rhythm when I asked for the mm -hmm. transition or I'm not bending the horse enough or whatever it is. And that's like a real problem, I think. When, oh, yeah. And I mean, and I've totally been guilty of that. I had a, a, oh, me too. a clinician told me one time, he's like, you really don't let yourself learn, do you? You just go right into beating yourself up immediately. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, that's kind of my system. But it's just, <laughs> it's, it, I mean, it's not a great system. It's mine. But, uh, and because actually of what that clinician said to me, I've become a lot more aware uh, of that in people I work with too, as well as myself. I can say to them, look, I understand why you're doing that but it's not, it's not helping you or the horse and it's not accurate. It's not, yeah, accurate, it's not at, accurate at all. Like you, you, you need to kind of commit to accuracy and understanding the situation. And that is not, it's actually creating a lot of distortion in your ability to understand yeah. what's going on. And you did, you rocked that sitting trot. Like you should own yeah. that and enjoy uh, that because that's, that's you think I'm lying over here. Yeah. Yeah. You think, <laughs> you know, you, you know that I'm not normally like effusively complimenting I'm effusively complimenting you because it's, it's well earned, right. you know, and there's uh, two really horrible, hard, yucky, awful lessons that really hurt my feelings that I have taken on through ever since I heard them. And the first one was a teacher told me, you think you're being hard on yourself, or, but you're hard on your horse. And I was like, me? No, I'm nice. I am not. I'm only hard on myself. But and then I sat on that and I was like, you're so right. Every time I'm making myself do something again, or, you know, that was okay, but I didn't do this, or I'm just never going to get it. All, all the horse feels is this that same feeling being put on them where you just mindless repetition and you know, that was okay, but you know, it's never good enough. And so you don't praise and recognize the horses changes either because you're so stuck in your head. Right. Right. Um, that was a really, really huge takeaway for me. And now I can't remember the other one. <laughs> oh, well, I've got, I've got one that's sort of related and, and it was that same teacher and, um, he said something to me in passing one time that, you know, you really like to push into pressure in general. Like he was just talking about like at lunch or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what? Like, that's not me. And, uh, and this idea too, of always kind of berating yourself, those two things were linked, you know, he oh, said, yeah. he'd said the first thing about, you know, you don't allow yourself to learn, then you push into pressure. And I was thinking about it. And I realized that when we do that, or when I do that, 
um, and I'm berating myself and I'm like, oh, I just sucked at that. And I'm really, what I'm really doing is I'm completely abandoning my horse. Uh, yes, I'm getting, I'm getting exactly. all focused on myself and, and, and it's, first of all, a, I'm not that bad really. Like there are people who really treat their horses badly, you know, and yeah. they jump, jump them off cliffs or, you know, like really like I'm, there's no way I'm in that category. I can be somewhat inept and, and a little bit, uh, disorganized, but that's not that to, to put myself in that category is ridiculous. Yeah. And it's just yeah. adding a lot of drama. So when your mind is like that, you have no room, like you're saying for the horse, and, yeah. and then when I realized that, that I was basically shirking my responsibility to the horse by getting all into like, you know, all of my mental drama, that was a very intense moment oh, for yeah. me. And I was just like, oh, I mean, that's something that I couldn't even talk about for like two years. Yeah, it hurts, it doesn't so, it? Sucks. It does. It does. <laughs> it does. I don't know if you've ever read um, Steve Pressfield. He wrote The War of Art and Turning Pro. And uh, he has this whole thing about epiphanies, like epiphanies actually really suck because it's when yeah. you see sort of the, the full picture, the full reality, and you realize just how much you have been avoiding kind of doing the work. And, yeah. and so the epiphanies are really great in the insights they provide, but they never really feel great. And that was, that was yeah. my version of that. So I remember the second one. The second one was the same teacher told me that when you're being self-deprecating, and when you're being arrogant, they're both the same amount of ego that like, ah. they're both the same op opposing sides of the same thing. And, and he was like, both of them don't allow you to learn because in one instance, you think, you know, everything in the other instance, you think you don't know anything and you can't learn. And both are totally false and totally egotistical because you're making the focus all about you and not the horse. Exactly. Just, like you just said. Exactly. And I was like me, I am not arrogant i am not i am not yeah, being yeah. humble is not <laughs> like you know you're acting like you can't learn anything which isn't true both are inaccurate and both are harmful right and he was like just snap out of it and just pay attention to the moment and i was like oh no i know i know it's like this idea of basically i tell myself that i'm just needing to learn more or i can't really get it or whatever and it's like i'm just not stepping to the plate and and that yeah it can be kind of a cop-out it I'll never it be is. Good enough. I can't yeah. do it. It's yeah. hard, you know. Right, right. Like, of course, you can do it. Everyone can do it. I think Leslie Desmond has a really great saying where she says, you know, if you can tell the difference between like pounding a hammer and uh, I think she says pounding a hammer into a, a wood fence or petting a cat's head, you have feel, which <laughs> right. is like her way of saying like it is not something you can't do. Right, right. It's not this mystical Zen-like thing that yeah. It takes. Yeah. It's just conditioning, learning to observe, learning to refine those skills. Everyone has those skills. It's just how often are you using them and to what extent are you willing to improve? Right, right. Well, we've gotten kind of a little far off the overall topic, but it all seems related. And we've been talking about 50 minutes in case, because it always feels like oh, wow. we, just, we were just talking for yeah. 10 minutes. So I'm just going to check real quick here and make sure that there is anything I need to do on the Facebook live page. But is there a particular uh, horse or story you'd like to tell while I'm doing that about this general topic, like a horse that maybe really displayed some of that her dynamic issue, or maybe that with your help was able to bounce back faster than you expected? Not that, not that fast is the thing, but just some mm -hmm. story about that or a cult you worked with. Well, I have a colt in to get started right now, and he's a sweet, lovely, lovely little horse, but he was kind of pushy, chewed on everything, um, you know, kind of just acted like a giant puppy dog. Um, 
and I wouldn't call him non-responsive, but he wasn't conditioned to seeking answers and to moving away. He kind of would, you know, walk right over your toes kind of a guy. Um, mm-hmm. And to me, it felt like in order to motivate him, the amount of pressure I would have had to have put on him would have really scared him and would be mm-hmm. very unfair. Um, and so I changed up. Oops, sorry. It's okay. You disappeared. There she is. She's yeah. Back. I thought I put my phone on do not disturb, but it didn't work. Sorry. <laughs> I changed up his herd situation a couple times um, because he would go into the herd and he would walk up to a horse and put his nose like right up their butt and they would <laughs> oh, no. be annoyed and kick out at him and he just wouldn't move. And he was just like, well, Hey, it's me. I love you. Who are you? And so I, I kept moving him around until I found the right herd because I didn't want somebody to beat him up, mm-hmm. but I also didn't want somebody to let him do that. Yeah, right. Um, and I had already had a couple rides on him at this point and they were going okay, but he's kind of like a mush. Like I would pick up the right rein and he just fold his neck in half. And he wasn't uh. super motivated to think about what that meant. You know, he would, he would respond, but it was like, <laughs> so after I put him out with the herd, I rode him again and he was lovely. And it was like, I haven't had a problem since. Um, oh. And, you know, I, I really prefer not to beat any horses up. So sure. I tried to find a way to, make her dynamics make sense for that horse and, and help me out. And I think one of the most important things a young horse needs to understand is that other horses can move him. Yes. And, and, and the, that just makes life for me so much easier. Cause if they're, if they're used to walking into horses that are trying to get rid of them, um, that's just not going to be a good mm-hmm. scenario. No. And what would you suggest? Cause there are a lot of people who, and I, I don't have lots of pastures. We have some sm- large paddocks, very small pastures. Mm -hmm. We we keep some horses also at a boarding facility that has decent turnout, but it's not like it's rolling acres with a fixed herd. And the majority of people I work with usually keep their horses at a boarding facility or a very Mm -hmm. small kind of home facility. What do you, what are good strategies in that scenario where you, you unfortunately don't have the ability to send them to your boss mare to hang out in your pasture? (laughs) Like what are some of the things that people can can do to support their horses if they can't give them that ideal herd environment? That's, that's a great question. Um, if you don't have, if you're at a boarding barn and you don't have control over the way they're fed and handled on the day to day, the best thing you can do is just make sure that every interaction you have is consistent with the same type of feel. Um, mm-hmm. So when you, you go out to put the halter on, you're doing a combination of drawing and driving. You're not just throwing the halter up over their head while their head is hundred miles in the air and you're kind of pulling their head around. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually consider haltering extremely important because I want the horse's head to drop and come toward me. And then there's an outside boundary that I bring their head toward with me mm-hmm. and then an inside boundary. And through that, they learn to drop their head down. And that eventually to me turns into a stretchy trot. So all of those basics build and are extremely important. You can't skip over haltering, um, haltering, leading. If you just change the way you led and led with more accuracy, it would change your whole life. Um, I totally agree with that. That's probably, again, I, I focus on very basic things because that's really all I'm qualified mm-hmm. to do in my opinion. But um, I spend so much time with people working on things like haltering, leading, mm-hmm. releasing your horse back. And people are like, this is yeah. baby stuff. And I'm like, yeah. And you're flunking. Like you're not yeah, even. Exactly. It's just, and that's why, <laughs> and that's why, you know, you're having trouble under saddle and it seems so elementary but yes. everything, everything is in that. And, you know, you're, you're, you're working the jaw, you're working the axis and the atlas and the yeah, pole, exactly. all of that stuff. And then is the horse with you or not? Just that key thing when you're leading, that has to do with your own field of life and your body, 
all these exactly. things. And, and it's a really great uh, venue for becoming aware of those things in, like, hopefully, a safe way, right? Yeah. Unless your horse is uh, rearing and striking at you, in which case uh, I've probably taken over the lead rope at that point. But, <laughs> you know, it's just uh, it's just fascinating to me that you say that, too, about the haltering and leading. It, it totally Haltering and leading are my jam. And yeah. I, it's funny that you say that because I will often teach somebody who'll come to me and they're like, I'm a silver medalist and I ride with some hotsy totsy. And I'm like, okay, cool. Let's work on haltering. And they're like, excuse me. me? And I'm like, yeah, well, your basics are sorely lacking. So we're going to halter for an hour. But I have you know? staff. Staff does that for me. They halter for <laughs> <Exactly>. me. <laughs> and that's why your horse pushes through your left leg and the left side of your bit because right. they're constantly leading towards you and looking away and you're right. building an enormous underneck on the left side, and it all ma- it all matters. I mean, you can't suddenly change your postural habits just because you're up there, you know. Right, and then the, and leading from both sides is essential because you always lead on the left, and your horse is pushing on you with your left shoulder and knocking you over that way. Yeah. And if you want a straight horse, you need to be on both sides, and you need to teach both shoulders to go straight. And you can do that wonderfully and very easily on the lead line. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I. I really enjoyed this conversation. We've got to do it again. And uh, I already cool. have the topic, you know, maybe it'll be oh, yeah? in a few weeks, ride the shoulders. I would just love oh, yeah. to hear you sort of riff on that because that's sure. a fairly new concept to me. And I've been thinking about it a lot and it's like, wow, that's just mind blowing. And, yeah. the, and the whole saying, of course, is ride the shoulders, not the mouth. Yeah. And so, um, that's the theme of my whole year. And through that, I have realized some really awful things and some really good things about myself. So it's like you said, like epiphanies really, really do suck, (laughs) (laughs) but but that's the theme of my year and it's changed the way I think about everything. So I would love to talk about that. Well, that sounds great. Amy, thank you so much for joining us again. We'll be posting this on the podcast eventually and also on YouTube, but I just really want to thank you. I get so much out of our conversations. I've got, oh, like, good. I've got like three pages of notes. So oh, awesome. yeah, it was great. Well, you're sneaky you. about notes. I never noticed. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I kind of, I look at you and I nod and you'll see my shoulders twitching and that means I'm taking <laughs> notes. So. I thought maybe you were just like having too much coffee. Yeah. Th- that could be happening too. So <laughs> Well, thanks for having me. That was a lot Thank of fun. you. Thank you so much, Amy. Take care. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed our conversation today as much as we did. This was probably one of my most favorite episodes that I've done just because of all the laughter and Amy's insights about epiphanies and the kind of sucking nature of epiphanies and how we all end up in our journey having those moments where we maybe learn more than we want to. For more information on Amy, please visit her website at amyskinnerhorsemanship.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope, as always, that you have a wonderful day.